Koto Katoa and welcome to the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey and this is our weekly hoon, a lap around the traps of the political economy with someone else from the press gallery and welcome in to Luke Malpass from Stuff, the head of um, Stuff's parliamentary press gallery team. Kia ora, good morning Bernard. Great to see you there. I'll I'll keep keep it snappy because this week has been jam packed, full of news. Not just in the political economy, but of course, with the health of uh, the economy and society. The snap lockdowns announced on Tuesday night have really changed the game in all sorts of ways. From your point of view, Luke, as someone who actually just came back recently from Australia, it's obviously not you. <laughs> As the as the as the as the index case, but what did you think of the lockdown decision and the response from the public? Oh look, I thought it was the right decision. It was it was very well telegraphed. I mean, I'd preface everything by saying that you've got to think about the decisions within. You've got to think about the decisions within the context of, of the government's general framework, which is an elimination strategy. And given that elimination is the name of the game, they made the right call. I've gone early, as you say, and I can get into it a little bit more. I was regrettably stuck in New South Wales for what was supposed to be a week-long trip for a family wedding. It ended up being uh, seven weeks in total by the time I got back through MIQ. And certainly from my experience in New South Wales, and I know the government's been looking very closely at this, Delta is just so, so infectious. If, you want, if you're going to go for elimination, you've got to crack down on it hard. And I think the government's done that. And I think really the the tenor of the approach has been fulsomely supported by basically everyone across politics, which kind of says it all. Yeah, I mean, having been in New South Wales and and having seen the type of lockdown they have here, the impression in New Zealand is they didn't go hard and early (laughs) and their experience has informed ours and the PM was very um, effective, I think, on Tuesday night in saying we only get one chance at this. Look at what happened in New South Wales. We have to go extra hard and extra early. Oh, look, I think that is probably true. So New South Wales had quite a different a different approach to COVID, both New Zealand and basically the rest of the Australian states. They had by far the best testing and contact tracing regime. And with the earlier cases, uh, with the earliest strains of the virus that came over, they were able to very effectively basically hunt down chains of trans- transmission, ramp up their testing really fast and get on top of it. And they'd have sort of super localised lockdowns. So you might remember over Christmas, they had the Northern Beaches kind of lockdown. And and so they were able to basically keep their economy going and humming. And the Prime Minister Scott Morrison talked about how it was the gold standard. And when Delta came, it just changed everything. The contact tracing wasn't up to it. Testing wasn't up to it. And I mean, in New South Wales, you wander around Sydney and there's just signs for testing clinics everywhere. So they had these standing testing clinics all the time to get as you know as many tests as possible when they needed to ramp up. But the I think the transmissibility wasn't really understood very well. And, and yeah, I mean, they were, they were pretty slow and basically the, the, the cat got out of the bag. And I think the interesting thing about New South Wales was it wasn't that there was a massive explosion that basically since I think it's June 16 the case was confirmed it's just gone it's just steadily gone up and up and up and up and up and of course then it spilled over into other states yeah it's interesting to watch the coverage out of Australia for my sins I'm a subscriber to a bunch of publications over there and Mm. have been really surprised at the different 
culture and tone of the debate, driven partly, I suppose, by the News Corp papers, but also mm. Sky News, whereby the default seems to be, you know, we really don't want to lock down. This is going to kill the economy and it's a pain in the butt and we, we should do everything we can to avoid lockdowns. And the pressure I sense from within Gladys Berejiklian's cabinet is to stay as open as possible. It's quite a different tone in the way it's all discussed over there compared to here. I think early on, you know, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, well, you know, elimination is not our goal, although, as has been pointed out numerous times here, it was elimination in all but name. They had basically the same strategy. The way that all of the other states except New South Wales managed it was early lockdowns, you know, basically the same strategy as New Zealand. In New South Wales, because they had this really good system that they'd stood up, they were able to do a more limited kind of version of that. And of course, like the Berejiklian government, it's a, it's, a, it's a liberal government. It's also, I mean, you know, people forget that Sydney is one of the world's great multicultural cities. There's loads of people. I mean, the Premier there did not speak English when she started Prime. And so it's not just, a, it wasn't just a case. New South Wales is far more liberal, not just on the fact they didn't want to shut down, but also they have opposed every extra limiting of, you know, people coming in through their version of MIQ. They've wanted to keep international flights open. And I think partly it's because it is a sort of a globally interconnected city and and that has very much informed their approach. Now, as time has gone on, it's been clear that that hasn't worked, and they've got the worst of both worlds now. They sort of have pretty, what, what would be basically level three, it's a level three lockdown, so basically everything's shut, except everything's shut except takeout, essentially. There are some builders working again now, but you need to get a jab, um, I see you can other. you can go and visit your personal trainer if you're in Sydney. You you're allowed to have exercise in groups of two. Yeah, there's all sorts of slightly odd. I noticed actually in the last list of carve-outs, I'm not like, I'm not a fan with exact details, but like anything to do with real estate, like home auctions are still on. Oh yeah, such a Sydney such a Sydney thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I mean like even when the lockdown happened, right? So. It was, it's sort of, so we arrived a week before my, my brother-in-law's wedding. We were literally waiting for the bride to walk, to, to walk down the aisle at 2 p.m. on a Saturday when you know, everyone's phone started pinging that there was going to be a lockdown from 6 p.m. that night. However, all, we, all weddings could go, could go ahead for the weekend. And, you know, there were, like, to start with, you forget about it now, but there were all these sort of crazy rules like the wedding I was at where, you know, only the bride, there was no singing only the bridal party was allowed to dance. Everyone had to be seated at their tables. If you stood up, you had to put your mask on. And it was kind of like through the through the looking glass. And that had sort of worked for them up till then. And so that was fine. But, I mean, Delta is just... It's out you know. now. And yeah, I, I yeah. think that experience across in New South Wales has really strengthened the resolve of the Go Hard and Go Early Brigade. And I sense, too, that the Prime Minister has lifted her game and feels a lot more comfortable at those 1pm news conferences than she has been for many months. No, no, there hasn't been any polls done this week, but I sense that winter of discontent, the loss of 10 percentage points or so for Labour, probably just reversed in the last couple of days. I would, I would, I would, suspect, I would suspect so as well. And I think particularly if the country does manage to, 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 to crush it, basically, then that'll be a big tick in the plus column. Because, I mean, if you think about it, I have two things. There's obviously there's a reasonable chunk of the population that's really frightened of COVID, but there's also a reasonable chunk that 
probably myself included, that sort of has Stockholm syndrome to some degree. That you know that actually you know that actually it is better just to shut everything down, uh, to shut everything down, get everything back to normal because it's just such a pain in the ass being stuck at home all the time, and that, that that's just kind of no way to live. So I think the interesting thing longer term, and I'm sure we'll discuss this, but will be how the government kind of changes from setting that basic expectation to, to changing the messaging when it is the case the world and cases will come in and how psychologically as much as anything voters deal with that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know it's eons ago now, it seems, the Skeg report from last week. I mean, <laughs> literally less than a week. We were talking about uh, when we reopen and how we reopen. And it it dawned on me while listening to the presentation that New Zealand is going to be in the completely unique position of being utterly alone with an elimination strategy. It struck me through that presentation that we had effectively chosen to double down on elimination. And this idea that at some point we'll have to learn how to live with it, we'll have to um, flick the switch and hope that ever, as many people are as vaccinated as possible is actually not there, in part because our hospital systems, our emergency care units, particularly the paediatric ones, are not robust enough to handle what looks like what a, what a Delta outbreak would look like. That whole sort of fortress New Zealand, you know, us alone with lockdowns and elimination, at some point we're going to have to give that up, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. I think that's clear. And I think, to be honest, I think in part a fair bit of the strategy has been buying time. So once the once the vaccine is basically rolled out and everyone who wants one can get one. And by the way, I think that this lockdown will actually help in a perverse way. It will help the vaccine roll out because, you know, like this human, people are people and... If there's no COVID here, oh, do I really need to get a vaccine? Well, you know, it's a bit of a pain in the ass, and it's a bit of a, um, it's a, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a hassle. I'm not too sure about it, and I've got a friend who says it's going to do all sorts of bad stuff to me. I think this will quell a fair bit of that, and and It'll be easier too for the police to be more robust. We've seen that in a way with the arrests of the military car crew in Auckland. And, and also there's been a few, you know, warnings, whereas in the past I sense the government and the police were quite reluctant to go all heavy-handed on it. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think, I, you know, it only, I mean, certainly in my time in Sydney, there was the, the amount of cases where someone was basically being a bit of an idiot, not following the rules. Early on there was a kind of humorous case of the St George Dragons league team who had a big party and when one of their guys saw the cops coming, he literally ran 4Ks home. <laughs> but That's a training regime. Yep. But he'd left his personalised number plate car out the front. Oh. You know? <laughs> so, I don't think we've got any of that, which is which is all to the good. But I, but I, I mean, honestly, I think the, the, the most difficult thing, I mean, the most difficult thing will actually be the political task of convincing people that there will be risk, we will have to deal with it. And in some case, and I know that this came out of the UK, I think it was last week or the week before, they're sort of saying now, well, they're sort of saying, look, we need to move past, we shouldn't even be reporting on numbers anymore. Oof. Numbers don't, like like headline case, num headline case numbers don't matter. Even hospitalizations don't matter. The thing that matters is, the number that matters is how many people are seriously ill. Mm. 
which which prior to I mean and and I guess as the media would push a lot of this along right? because it, particularly if you've got an elimination strategy one case is very big news but um, it's this idea that what's the thing that matters and if you remember when COVID first broke out last year it was the, the public policy problem was really is your health system equipped to deal with this and if your caseload is such that it is equipped to deal with this and that there are very few deaths or that deaths are you know, a bit lower or in line with the flu, the seasonal flu, for example, then, you know, do you accept that? And you say, well, that's kind of okay. I think the political question is, have we got ourselves all in a, in a, in a, in a state, in a, not a, sorry, I'm not meaning to downplay how, how mm. terrible death is in this regard, but I mean, have we got ourselves in a position now where, where a single death from COVID is treated very differently as a single death from, you know, for example, the flu or from yeah. any other sort of, or from any other sort of ailment? It's, but I think that's an interesting question. It's, an open question. it's tough, isn't it? I think one of the reasons why that there's this intensity to try and lock it out completely is that we all know that if there was a proper Delta outbreak, particularly with so few vaccinated now, our health system would be overwhelmed. And for me, the surprise uh, factoid, factoid that came out in the last w- week or so, I didn't realise this, but we only have one paediatric uh, intensive care unit hospital in the whole country, which is yeah. Starship, and it's already at full capacity pre-COVID. And I sense the government haven't really, and maybe they're distracted by the DHB re- re- reforms, but haven't really expanded our capacity to deal with it at the hospital level if we were to get an, an outbreak before then. And really, we only have Plan A, which is elimination, until yep. um, we get as many vaccinated as possible. 100%. There's no, yeah, yeah, there is, there's, there's no Plan B. And, and I think the other difference that's kind of lost is that if you think about the earthquakes or White Island, these sorts of events, New Zealand has always been able to import the help that it needs. And with COVID, you can't import it. You can't import people. You can't, I mean, everyone around the world is trying to get the same gears, but I mean, I'm sure to a degree now as things loosen up, that you can probably get more sort of ventilators and that sort of stuff. But it's not like you're the only country. Everyone else has this has the same problem. In fact, we're and probably so losing much... medical staff because of the problems with migration uh, rules. Well, that's right. No, no, that's 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 certainly right. I mean, certainly I've, certainly I've been hearing that... Um, that are medical professionals who are here, who are say want to get their permanent residency, it's basically just a just a total notion. Go slow at the moment. That's another so, issue yeah, which is um, yeah. bubbling around for the for the government. Just yeah. jumping on to the political economy thing. Thing. One of the reasons I was re- really keen to get you on, Lucas, because you've your background as uh, an economics leader writer for the Australian Financial Review. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And right. previous to that, working in New Zealand's policy wonkdom around <laughs> economics, which is, for me, that's a badge of honour. That's not an insult. And tell me, what, what do you think of the government's response fiscally and with the economy, particularly in the light of what the Reserve Bank didn't do on mm. Wednesday? Well, look, um, I mean, I'm, I've always thought that the design of the wage subsidy in New Zealand was basically world-leading. There's a lot of New Zealand exceptionalism around about our response to COVID, but I think genuinely the, the wage subsidy, the way that it has rolled out, the simplicity of it has, was was very, very strong. And to be honest, I think more than just Jacinda Ardern's sort of leadership through last year, I think it was the wage subsidy and grant and the way that, that that nursed a lot of businesses through the through the um, uh, 
through last year was actually the thing that tipped Labor into majority government this time around. So I think, you know, they'll, they'll be cranking that back out. I mean, the decision's in a couple of hours. Probably it'll be made by the time this goes live, but I mean, I'm sure it'll be an extension of Level 4. The wage subsidy will go back out. It's not designed to be a total replacement. It's designed to sort of nurse through. I think that's probably appropriate. There's been some increases in the meantime, like last year when it was first announced and then at the budget this year, there's been increases for beneficiaries and for those at the lower end of the, the scale. So they're all they're all sort of there and there and locked in. And on the fiscal side, I think it's, you know, the, the, the response will continue. But I think there is a broader question that will be asked down, but what has to be asked as we go down the line, how much of that spending that was set aside in the COVID fund has really been spent on? I mean, obviously there's been all the, the stuff like the waste subsidy, but, you know, it was COVID shovel-ready projects and infrastructure, how much of that's actually been spent, how much of it has been good spending, and how, or how much of it's sort of just been splashed up against the wall. So I think that's I think that's a I think that's a very live question. I was I was fascinated with the RBNZ's decision yeah. yesterday. Hike when everyone expected at least twenty five and probably fifty. Although it's interesting in their uh, forecast, they're still expecting to do one towards the end of this year and then get cracking on rise to nearly two percent within a couple of years. Yep, yep, yeah. So I, I thought that all seemed pretty sensible. I mean, I had a bit of a bet with. Um, Janae from interest over what the decision was going to be after the after the lockdown, and I won that bet. That's a chocolate fish for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we agreed on a very cheap bottle of wine. And I, I look, I, I mean, I just I just think that with Delta, the lockdown could go on for quite a long period, and and just keeping the current settings in place made sense. But you know, ready to ready to pull the trigger, and I mean. People are funny. You never quite know what the response is going to be out in the market, particularly if this drags on for two, three, four weeks. Um, what will happen to housing afterwards? I mean, I expect it would be similar to la- similar to last year, just be a bit, a bit, a bit more pent up demand. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I thought that was all pretty reasonable from the Reserve Bank, and I thought it was also quite telling in this statement that that really they're acknowledging that the underlying drivers of inflation are now there. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that, that's, think, that, um, that, they're obviously uh, keen to, to get tightening. And I asked the governor hmm. in the press conference, you know, if you were going to have to go back to the easing track, would it be the OCR or more quantitative easing? And they're very keen, obviously, to use the OCR in future and to reject any suggestion that there's going to be e- even more easing. If, you know, we do have a very bad Delta lockdown long, and uh, painful that really does affect the economy. What more do you think could be done on the fiscal or monetary policy side that to make sense? Because it was interesting that Reserve Bank again said, you know, if if we do need more stimulus, we'd love it to be fiscal, in the in brackets, not monetary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one of the one of the upsides, of, quite aside from inflation, of having a bit of a timing cycle is that is that once the rate goes up a bit. Reserve Bank gives themselves more headroom so that they can kind of cut again. And I mean, that's more generally the, the argument for, for in general wanting to, I guess, normalise interest rates as a, as a, as a course of, um, you know, just a, as, as, a general, as a general guiding principle, I suppose. I wrote about this a few weeks ago. I mean, one of the interesting things I think of the last decade more is that basically homeowners have only ever had rates go down one way, apart from the blip around 2014. Um, 
reserve banks up until just recently have essentially found that the lower basically that, that you can keep interest rates much lower and because of technological advances that it's not going to spiral out into inflation so i think we're into more uncharted territory there really and and of course having the all the borders closed and all this sort of stuff you know you would you would expect would create inflationary inflationary pressures and was, we're sort of starting to see that now yeah it was really interesting though just to have a look at the australians jobs numbers which i do for fun this week which showed <laughs> relatively low wage inflation in Australia, mm. recorded wage instru- inflation, because there's anecdotes galore of all sorts of sign-on bonuses and big pay increases and bidding wars and things. But actually, um, that will be the test, I think, on the inflation, the wage inflation turns into price inflation spiral idea, is whether we actually get the wage inflation. And mm. interesting, the government is doing its bit to try and keep wage inflation low particularly through the health system, and that will be an interesting moment, I think, when we actually do see some wage inflation come in New Zealand, because so far it hasn't come. Everyone says mm. the, the conditions are there, and you're right about the migration stuff. You don't have the, any downward pressure. I know there's a debate about that, but downward pressure from migrants coming in. So uh, that, will, for me, will be the key to, to say, OK, we really are back on the inflation horse. It's time for the Reserve Bank to do stuff. I have a slightly more dovish view than than most people but um yeah 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 i mean i i think it's very much a sort of it's 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 a wait and see at the moment we're in this sort of almost back to the future world of kind of closed borders I mean, we still have capital flows and stuff like that but i mean it's it's it certainly on the labor side you know new zealand is sort of what i i often refer to as sort of a frontier economy young country and and you would expect and australia is the same that um, population growth has driven a fair chunk of economic growth and that's kind of not unusual and not necessarily a bad thing even, although obviously there is debate about that. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I just know I was quite interested that uh, would have been a couple of months ago, the RBA has basically said, and it was in its, and the Treasury and the, around the time of the Australian budget, that they actually thought that, that unemployment in Australia could be driven down essentially through fiscal policy, in particular paying a lot of traditionally female-dominated workforce jobs and health, social services, caring professions, that that you could open up the fiscal canon a bit and drive inflation down and drive unemployment down below three percent without inflation breaking out. Wow, three percent. Um, Go for gold. Yeah, it was three it was yeah, it was three percent. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and this was a very big change from the RBA, but they they you know, Phil Lowe, they sort of said, Oh well, you know, the the conditions are there and with, with, with support of fiscal and monetary policy, we should we should go for it. And and the Reserve Bank of Australia is still printing at a rate of five billion yep. Australian a week, which whereas our um, Reserve Bank stopped printing about six weeks ago. And we'll see in, I think, early September, the Reserve Bank, in theory, is going to keep its money printing going. And, and maybe, I know they were planning to go from, I think, five to six, and then they reversed it. And now we'll find out whether they keep going to six. That will be an interesting moment. And, and you're, you're right, the Australian view on, particularly on migration, there was a great speech from Philip Lowe about how migration had suppressed wage inflation in Australia. They have made that call. Yep. Our Productivity Commission is still doing the, doing the work. And um, that will be an interesting moment too for the Australians, whether they fire up mm. their migration again after COVID. And I'm sure they've got even more 
demand from employers saying screaming out for for, yeah. for more migrants. They, 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 they desperate they desperate want to. And and you know, again in, in Australia it's also very much driven by, you know, Zin, well, I remember there were figures from a couple of years ago. I think one third of Australians weren't born in Australia and two thirds of Australians, their parents weren't born in Australia. So it's a big migrant country and there's a lot of you know getting family over as well and and obviously you know it's a place a lot you know in a way like new zealand is but it's a place where a lot of people want to go and want to live and and they're keen to open that up as as much as possible but it'll be very interesting the covid situation because you have a whole pile of state premiers now who have really made their bones out of locking down keeping people out very similar strategy to new zealand but then on the federal level uh, the commonwealth they really want to you know open up as soon as they kind of can. And that'll be a really interesting political tension. It is similar way that, yeah. yeah, we forget the, the federal state tensions in Australia because for a time, New Zealand and Australia seem to be both doing the same thing at the same time and having the same success with COVID. And it always surprised me a bit that they managed to get their act together. They had this national cabinet, uh, national sort of war cabinet-y thing, which seemed yes, to work which isn't, for a while. Which isn't, yes, which I believe the... Courts of world isn't actually a cabinet, ah. so you so you can sort of you can kind of request papers that go to it and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we don't want to get down to the weeds of federalism in Australia, but it will be quite it'll be it'll be quite interesting because the things that are good for the federal the way that they've divided up responsibilities between the state and the federal level, the things that are very good for the federal government, which are you know high rates of migration, fills the fills the fills the tax coffers, uh, that sort of stuff. Often that is actually not such a plus for state governments who have to pay for all of that stuff. It's sort of like a local, the same as local councils here, right? Like if you want to, you know, someone wants to build a two thousand house development, the council may well you know, is often like, well, grief. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to pay for all this, and we're not going to really see any of the benefit of it. So it's that it, it's that same sort of problem. Although the states yeah. do get a share of GST, and they can charge and do stamp duties, whereas the councils don't. Yeah. Well, that is absolutely true, but I, I should I wouldn't be aping that. Stamp duty is, uh, in my view, having lived there, stamp duty is just the most. I mean, it stops labour mobility. It's just a big. It's just a big whack if you want to buy a new house, get a, I mean, I mean, you think about the situation of New Zealand homeowners, let's say the massive house price inflation, you want to buy a bigger house, all of a sudden, you know, sure, you're feeling pretty good, but you go to buy a new one, the percentage increase might be the same, but of course the dollars you need to find are significantly greater. Imagine when you do that, then you have to also, let's say you have to buy a house that's, I don't know, 800 grand, then you have to also find 50 grand to pay on stamp duty. You know, you can't, you're not allowed to put it on the mortgage. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty arbitrary. It's a pretty arbitrary, arbitrary, painful tax. I'd prefer a land tax, but that's that's just me. A good discussion for for another day. So just to uh, finalise and and end up here, uh, Luke, it's a tough one because we're we're recording this at around about just before midday on Friday. We're not going to get the press conference until uh, three o'clock in which the government will say, what's going to happen with the lockdown. And although the hard and early seems to give us a better shot, I don't think it's it's a sure thing we're going to get in control of this. It's it's not one of, I think, sorry to interrupt, but one of the interesting things would be what happens if we don't. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, what, do you just do you lock yeah. down for months? Because so you much, know, I mean, so much political you, capital, so much sort of emotional capital in New Zealand is in elimination. It's our baby. Yeah. 
<laughs> and yep. to give up on the life of our baby is going to be hard, not just for the politicians, but for the public. And particularly, it'll force us to, you know, make some tough calls about, you know, whether we open up or how we open up. One thing that struck me, just to finish off, given that we are doing the doubling down on elimination, and it seems to me that opening up now looks further and further out into 2022, particularly because the Australians are having such trouble and essentially we don't really open up until the Australians do. The first obvious candidate is a bubble with Australia, not to mention all the airlines pretty much bounce through Australia to us, so if they don't open, we don't open. And it seems to me, you know, late 2022 is now more realistic as a proper reopening period. If that's the case, we should be building a whole bunch of more MIQ because that seems to be the real limit on our uh, ability to exist in this fortress New Zealand state. Right. So that's an interesting one. So I've always been very sceptical about building more MIQ. And my understanding is that actually it's not so much an issue of like New Zealand could get a basically get a few more hotels and turn them into MIQ. The issue now is late. It's having enough health professionals and also just the risk of standing. I mean, most of these facilities have been around a while now. They kind of know what they're doing. You know, every what new one that you stand up, new staff, new management. I mean, it's like any new thing. There'll be teething problems. Particularly when um, we learned this week that it took two doors being opened at the mm-hmm. same time for three seconds to get a transmission of the virus. So I wrote about, I, I, I put, a, put, a, put a little bit in a column this morning about this. And this is this is terrifying because I've just come back through, um, unexpectedly through MIQ and everyone stays in their rooms now, basically, unless you're, out for, unless you're out for exercise. You're told don't open your door if you can hear someone down the corridor, all that sort of stuff. But of course the hotel doors are pretty soundproof. You know, in a way, it would be more comforting if there's some process or, 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 or person, you know, someone's made a mistake or there's some process that doesn't work properly, that would be more comforting because you can at least fix that. If it's just a case of, well, you know, a couple of people open their doors and one person caught it from another before they had their positive test and, you know, like there's the things you can do to mitigate something like that are basically none, you know, and that is actually a, a bit more frightening. I'm a bit sceptical more generally on more MIQ because I think if you, if the state starts building these things, they'll want to use them for longer than is probably necessary and the other thing is of course like the the big um, reopening to New Zealand thing last week uh, it was all about experimenting ways around doing home isolation more effectively and I, I, I just don't find that's actually going to happen I, I think that's a sop to the business community to buy yourself some time I mean those I things don't, don't work overseas and we don't have the systems for it because particularly with Delta you just need one one bad decision or one accidental human thing and they, they won't work. They won't. You are, you're totally right. They won't work with. Well, elimination is the is the strategy. I don't think. However, as you are starting to open up, there is definitely an argument for it being part of the mix. I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what sort of new technologies come out and whether um, we get much of this overseas. Because I know they try. They're trying it in Britain. All of those people who went overseas for holidays in summer came back. And uh, well, this they, were, is... they were given testing kits at the at the airport, and then people were supposed to collect them at their homes, and it hasn't worked at all. Yeah, well, exactly. I think the other thing is about the, the kind of reopening strategy. The big, I mean, conceptually, it all looks fine, but if you think about, I mean, even the bubble by the end, Chris Hipkins was basically like, 
you know, the best paid travel agent in New Zealand, trying to get people, trying to get people back in the country, it became a full-time job. In the UK, they've got a, you know, green and red system with all these countries that lose up and down. But I mean, it, it hasn't really worked particularly well. And I, and I think the thing is that you would have to, the amount of resource you'd have to put into creating that system in New Zealand in the first place, and then you know, how you would actually manage it. I mean, that just seems to me to be, that that, that is actually the, the point it will turn on. Conceptually, it looks like a good idea and kind of there's a bit of a sense of how to get out of it. And I think that's, I think that's really positive. But, you know, how that would actually work in practice is just a really, a really up in the air question, I think. Yes. And, and, I, and, I, and I think everyone will be watching to see what happens in the UK by the end of the year when basically everyone's vaccinated, how much COVID is around, how many people are getting seriously ill, I think. I think in part that will be that will be a really that will be a, a, a crucial thing that probably uh, officials here are looking at. Yeah, Luke Malpass from Stuff. Thank you very much, Luke. Great to talk, and uh, thanks again for um, exercising your uh, policy wonk, political economy brain. I appreciate it. We just we always enjoy a, a chat with the likes of Thomas and and Janae, and I often enjoy our discussions on the fringes of press conferences about monetary and fiscal policy. It's good to do it in front of the, in front of a microphone. Uh, Geeks forever. It's good. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, and I hope you're you're not driven completely bonkers by your kids and all of those things inside the house. It's good good to talk to you. I'm Bernard Hickey, and that was Ahoon uh, around the political economy for this week, the week that was on the kaka.